For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Well, hey, good morning, church family. Uh, My name is Brad. I'm one of the teaching pastors here. And let me just say, it is so great to be back. If you're a visitor here, what's so strange about that is, you know, you've uh, heard Pastor Lee or Pastor Craig or Pastor Daniel, and you're like, well, where is Pastor Lee? Where is Pastor Daniel, right? Where are those guys? I kind of miss those guys. And so I just want to give a shout out to them. It is such an incredible thing to me to be able to step out and have such gifted, amazing teachers step up and lead as I'm away. Can we just give them, I love that. Yeah. So thank you so much to those guys. They're, you know, they're willing to carry a heavier load for a season so that I can carry a lighter road, and I'm grateful for that. Well, listen, we're in James 2 this morning, and uh, we've reminded you every week that James was the half-brother, you know, of Jesus. But what's so interesting is that James didn't become a believer in Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. He didn't become a believer because Jesus walked on water. He didn't become a believer because Jesus fed thousands of people with just a few fish and loaves. It wasn't until after the death of Jesus that James became a believer, and he became a believer because of one event, and that was the resurrection of Jesus. That's what convinced him that Jesus was the Lord of life, right? And to put that in perspective, I, I, every time I talk about James, I, I ask you this question because I think it's such a great question. You know, uh, if, if uh, your brother claimed to be the son of God, what would he have to do to prove that to you. And I just think that that's so amazing that uh, Jesus was actually, you know, his brother came to believe that he was the savior of the world, the Lord of heaven and earth. Now, in James 1, so when James writes, he's not writing as the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing as a follower of Jesus and as, uh, you know, a Christian, right? So in James 1, James told us how to love God in different kinds of circumstances, right? How do I love God during trials? How do I love God? when I'm tempted? How do I love God when I'm angry? And so on and so forth. And he told us essentially we love God by being a doer of his word, not just hearing his word, but doing his word. Now here in James 2, he's going to tell us how to love people. So there's a shift here. And here's what he's going to say. My brothers and sisters show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. We're going to come back to that phrase, the Lord of glory. 
For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you would pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in a good seat while you say to the poor man, hey, you stand over there or sit at my feet. We haven't reserved a seat for you. Um, now, we're going to stop there and we're going to pick back up with James thinking in a minute, but I want you to first notice, because you would normally just skim over it, I want you to notice the phrase, the Lord of glory, that Jesus is the Lord of glory or the King of glory. What that means is that glory belongs to Christ alone. The word means splendor, beauty, magnificence, radiance, heaviness, weightiness, prominence, preeminence, splendor, majesty, holiness, purity, worthiness. The, the fact that Jesus is the Lord of glory means that he is utterly unique in all of the universe. And here's why this matters so much. The glory of God means that whatever you need, God is bigger. It means that whatever your weakness God is stronger. It means that he is bigger than your problems, bigger than your failures, bigger than your regrets, and bigger than your guilt and sin. And furthermore, the glory of God is what every single one of us in this room hungers and thirsts for. Now, we don't always articulate it that way, but here's the truth. We all yearn. And every time we yearn, we don't recognize the yearning as being this, but this is what it's for. It's always for the glory of God. The glory of God is meant to be the residue of your life and mine. The glory of God is, or at least a taste of it, a touch of it, is what you feel when you look at a beautiful ocean or a beautiful sunset or a vast mountain because the heavens, the earth, and the heavens declare the glory of God. We all, every time we have an unfulfilled desire, we may not recognize it again, but that desire is for the glory of God. And what's so amazing is that in John chapter 17, Jesus, as he's praying to the Father, he says, hey, you've given me glory, but I'm going to take that glory and I'm going to share it with those who come and follow me. And the reality for all of us is we don't want to just be there for the glory. We want to somehow be a part of it. Now, listen, illustrations fail, but I think uh, this one is a good one, even though it falls way short of the glory of God. But you know, um, in the, um, a few years ago, a documentary came out on Netflix called The Last Dance. It was a documentary about a basketball player from the 90s by the name of Michael Jordan. And in the late 90s, Michael Jordan was perhaps the most famous person on the entire planet. Uh, he won three championships with the Bulls, took a few years off to play minor league baseball, came back to the Bulls, won three more championships. I mean, his legacy is just incredible. And you would notice after a game, people wanted to touch Michael Jordan. They wanted to high-five Michael Jordan because to high-five Michael Jordan, well, that was a little taste, right, of glory. Well, and, and the truth about every one of us in this room is we don't want to just cheer for glory. We don't want to just touch glory. We want some of that. We want, to be, we want to be touched by it. We want to be consumed by it. Well, 
uh, on the Bulls, the Bulls had a reserve player by the name of Stacy King, who would sometimes he'd come off the bench, sometimes he wouldn't. Well, one night in a playoff game, he did. He said it would always be the greatest memory of his life, the night he and Michael Jordan combined for 70 points in an NBA Finals game. Well, Michael Jordan scored 69 of those 70 points. See, what Stacey King was saying was, look, I feel privileged to be a part of that. Like it may have just been one point, but it still added up to 70, right? And here's the truth. The glory of God, the fact that Jesus is the Lord of glory means that you and I get to be part of the biggest, uh, the um, most worthy exploit on the whole planet. And that is the kingdom of God. And what James is saying is that as citizens in the kingdom of God, relationships matter. The way we treat people, it matters. And favoritism, like the law of love, you know, Christ's command for us to love one another, that law, the law of Christ. We fail to love when we play favorites. Favoritism, partiality, discriminating against people for superficial, external, and artificial reasons, shallow reasons, external reasons, always violates the law of of love. And so first, we're called not to play favorites because Jesus didn't play favorites. Jesus doesn't judge people based on external factors. Look at this, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Talks about how the Lord does evaluate people. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance. In other words, what are they wearing? What color is their skin? Are they attractive? You know, we we ask questions like that. God doesn't look at people that way. God looks at the heart. In other words, God looks at the internal, not the external. Look what Romans 2 and 15 say. For God does not show favoritism ever except one another then, just as Christ has accepted you right? Now listen, I I think the easiest way, the best illustration I can think of to demonstrate the destructiveness, how serious favoritism is. And it's going to help us really understand why James is so uh, hard on us related to this favoritism thing. I mean, he's going to call it things like wicked and sinful. And he's going to say, we've all transgressed against the law because of favoritism. Well, I think if you're a parent, right, parents kind of get this. We understand how, I mean, like we understand, look, I'm not supposed to have favorites, right? Like sometimes we do. So I always say to my daughter, I always say to her, you are my very, very favorite daughter. And I mean it. Do you know why I mean it? Because she's my only daughter. So I can say that, right? It's not dangerous. But would I say that to her if I had other daughters? So I have two sons. Sometimes when each of my two sons calls me, here's what they'll say to me. They'll say, this is your favorite son. And you know what my question is? Well, which one? Which one? Because we know as parents, right, we're not supposed supposed to play favorites. Think about um, uh, somebody by the name of Joseph, 
right? How bad, we just see as a parent how bad, like favoritism gone wild, how ugly it can get, how badly it damages relationships. Uh, Joseph's story is found in Genesis 37. It goes all the way to Genesis 50. I'd encourage you, read the story. It's so good. But I'll just give you kind of a, um, a, a synopsis. So Joseph is Jacob's favorite. He has 12 sons. Joseph is the youngest. And he favors Joseph's. He makes, no, he makes no secret about it. The brothers know he's their favorite. He knows he's the favorite. And so one day the dad goes and he buys Joseph a coat. And he, it's a coat of many colors. This means it was a coat of honor. It was a coat of glory. It's be just like him going and, and taking Joseph to Neiman Marcus with him and buying him a, spending hundreds of dollars on a coat and then giving each of the other brothers $2 and saying, hey, go to Goodwill and pick up something used for yourself. I mean, just a blatant favoritism, right? I mean, all the brothers probably would have stood up like your kids would and said, well, that's not what? That's not fair. Well, favoritism, James is saying, is never, ever fair and not just in parental relationships. It's never fair. And so, uh, Joseph's brothers become so envious of their brother Joseph. Oh, and by the way, Joseph has a couple of dreams. One of his spiritual gifts is the ability to have dreams that kind of predict the future and then interpret those. He keeps having these dreams he's going to rule over his brothers. But does he keep those to himself? No. He shares it. He's proud of these dreams. Hey, brothers, gather around. God's given me dreams, and he's telling me that one day I'm going to rule over all you guys. That, that further endured, endeared him to his brothers, as you can imagine, right? No, they hated him for it. They detested him for it. In fact, they come up with a plan. Originally, they're going to kill him, but they end up only selling him into slavery so they can be through with him. This is where favoritism takes us. And by the way, Jacob, the father of Joseph, who made him his blatant favorite, he should have known better. You know why? Because he grew up in a home where his father favored his brother over him. And that rivalry lasted into their adulthood. And isn't it true? Don't you, if you think about it, you can think of some adult, someone you know, who has spent their entire life trying to prove to their parents and everybody else that they are just as lovable, just as worthy of love as their brother or their sister. See, we get as parents how bad favoritism can get, but James says, oh, no, 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 it can get bad in, in a family or even in the family of God. Notice he calls us brothers and sisters to start these verses. He says, dear brothers, dear brothers, dear sisters. He's saying, look, I'm talking to the family of God. The church isn't a business. You don't do things like the world does. Yeah, in the world, you get the seat you paid for, right? So if we go to a Pacers game and somebody's sitting in the box seat, we go, wow, they probably paid a lot more money for that seat than I did way up in the nosebleed. Amen. See, in the world, we get what we pay for, but in the church, we get what Jesus paid for. See, the church is not supposed to act like the world. 
So, uh, yeah, you just have these fantastic stories in the Old Testament. So James is just going to argue it's not just family relationships that suffer with partiality or favoritism, but that they're incredibly damaging, destructive to all relationships. And by the way, it's not so much favoritism as it is discrimination. We're discriminating based on these shallow, external, shallow, superficial judgments, right? What are they wearing? What color is their skin? Are they attractive? How much money do they make? You know, what can they do for me? And here's what I would just say. Great story, true. In 1884, a young man died, and after his funeral, his grieving parents decided to establish a memorial in his honor. So with that in mind, they met with Charles Eliot, who was then the president of Harvard University. It was one of the most distinguished universities in the country. It still is today. And after, uh, uh, so he kind of accepted this rather kind of homely and ragged looking couple into his office, and they expressed their desire to fund a memorial building in their son's honor. Well, Eliot sizing them up, uh, brushed off their idea as being far too expensive and beyond their means. In fact, he was so patronizing with this couple that they left that Harvard campus without offering that scholarship in the name of their son. Well, the next year, Charles Eliot learned that this plain pair had gone elsewhere and established that memorial for their son in his name. It was called the Leland Stanford Junior Scholarship, and it founded what is now known as Stanford University. It was a $26 million in the 1880s. And James says, look, don't do that. Don't judge people by shallow and superficial external things. Go deeper than that. In fact, I would just say to you, look, if you're a young man or a young woman here today and you're looking for a mate, see, we we put all this emphasis on the outside. I literally had a, somebody in premarital counseling list, one of the top five reasons they married their mate was because he was a good dancer. Shallow, superficial, right? Listen, don't marry a mate for externals. Don't marry somebody just because they're hot. Marry them for what's on the inside. Marry them because their internal beauty matches what their external beauty is. I would say to you, if you're here this morning and you're looking for a friend, don't pick a friend based on how good they are in sports. That's shallow and it's superficial. Or uh, what their skin color is or what their background is or whether they cheer or not or whether they're on the football team or not. No, pick your friends based on what is on the inside. Don't pick your friends based on what they do. Pick your friends based on who they are. And your friendships will rock. They will roll, I promise you. Well, so that's the what. Don't don't make judgments on people based on shallow external, because that's not how God looks at people. And then he picks it up with the why. Why should we not do that? Here's what he says. 
Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I want to stop there because that sounds a little harsh, right? It's like, whoa, James, like lighten up. Here's why he's talking this way. He's saying, listen, it is literally evil to play favorites because it violates the law of love. He's going to tell us that in a few minutes. But here's what else he's telling us. He's saying, look, when you love the attractive and you adore the wealthy, you just love people for what they can do for you. That's not really love. Like if a wealthy person walks into church and you gather around that, like if Bill Gates walked in and we're like, hey, wow, Bill Gates is here. Wow, we're all going to run up to Bill Gates. Why? Well, a lot of us are going to do that because of what Bill might be able to do for us or our community or this church. He's saying, look, it's selfish. It's evil. That's wicked. That is not. That violates the law. It's so far below the law of love, right? He's just saying you can't do that. And then he goes on to say, listen, my beloved brothers, again, we're a family in the, in the world. We're not, the, we're not a business. In the world, you get the seat you pay for. But in the church, we all get the seat Jesus paid for. I want to say that again. He says, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? See, it's an illustration I think that's really going to speak to our ages. It's going to ferret us out by age group. So when I was growing up, we didn't have organized sports like we did today. Parents didn't take their kids to the softball field uh, like they do today or the soccer field or wherever you take your kids. Now in my day, we had athletics, we had sports, but here's how it worked. We would just come together in our neighborhood We'd get on the landline, right? There, that used to be a thing. And we would call each other and go, hey, we're going to all play football this morning at 10 a.m. And everybody would come. And then the two best athletes in the neighborhood would be the captains. And then they would start to pick people for their teams. Now, what criteria do you think they used for the people that they picked for their teams? Yeah, how good could they play football? How good of an athlete are they? And so if you were kind of picked in the bottom half, the closer you got to the bottom, right, it was kind of shameful. Like, okay, I don't really want you on my team, but you're like the last two people here. So see, it was awful. It's no wonder we quit doing that, right? But that was the culture that I grew up in. And here's what you need to hear me say. Listen to me. When God chooses people, that is the exact opposite of what he does. That is contrary to the gospel of Jesus. God chooses the most messed up, sin-prone, dysfunctional, screwed up people, and then he begins to change and use them for his glory. And if you don't believe me, just look around the room. Thank you very much been waiting all morning to pull that one out of my out of my hat and listen I mean look at your teaching pastor look at us now listen 
Sometimes we get into this mode and, you know, we go, well, I, you know, I stumble and I fall and I'm guilty and I'm ashamed. Well, of course you stumble. Of course you fall. Of course you screw up, but get your eyes off of you. Part of the point of Jesus being called the Lord of glory is that we're to look up to him instead of down on other people. And we're to look up to him instead of down on ourselves as well, because he is the Lord of glory. Of course you stumble. Of course you fall. Look at this. Here's how Paul talks about how God chooses people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For considering your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast. Hey, you want me to tell you why God picked me for his team? I'm so awesome. I can do this. Hey, why did God pick you for his team? What can you do? No, none of that. No boasting so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So see, when you and I, when we show partiality, when we show favoritism, when we discriminate, we are not only failing to love in the way that God has loved us, but we are living in a way that is contrary to the gospel by which every single one of us have been saved. Because listen, you were not saved because of your awesomeness. I was not saved because of my awesomeness. You and I were saved because of God's awesomeness. See? God did not choose you or me because of what we brought to the table. He didn't choose you or me because he needed us on on his side to win. God has already won through the cross of Jesus securing our salvation finally, permanently, and forever. He's already won. And then secondly, we're actually forgetting the gospel when we treat people that way. I'll tell you why. Because why. one day, you and I were the ones dressed in shabby clothes. We were the ones dressed in filthy rags because of our own sin, our waywardness, and our rebellion. And God didn't look at that externally and go, I'm out. No, God looked past that, and he clothed you and I in the righteous, took all those filthy rags off, took all that, dis- all that disgusting clothing off. He took it all off, and he clothed you, and he clothed me in the righteousness of his son, any of us who have said yes to Jesus. That is our God, friend. So how dare we presume to look and make judgments about us, other people because of superficiality. And then James pulls out all the stops. He begins to talk about the poor. He really starts to lean in. And he's told him, look, the what is don't make shallow and superficial judgments based on external judgments. And then he starts to ask questions. Here's what he says to the poor. He says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, here's what James is saying, because it would be so easy to misinterpret these verses. He says, look, you so want to be loved 
by uh, the successful of this world. You so want to be recognized by them that even as they would blaspheme my name, you cuddle up to them, you cozy up to them, and they're the ones that are getting rich off your backs. That's what God is saying. Now, here's, it's so important that we get this right, that we talk about these verses in context, right? He's not saying, hey, just take your favoritism off of the rich and put it on the poor. He's not saying, hey, instead of despising the poor, everybody should despise the rich. That is not at all what he is doing, and I will prove it to you. So in this world, in this room, there are four groups of people, and all of us fit into one of those groups of people. There are the godly poor, The godly poor, that's who James is talking about here, the godly poor. These are people that through no fault of their own, they are being exploited. They're working hard, they're praying, they're sharing what little they have with others, but they're being taken advantage of. They're being continually repressed. That's who he's in mind here, the godly poor. Well, then there are the godly rich. That is not who James is talking about in these verses. He will talk about the godly rich a little later in the form of Abraham and Job, who were both very, very rich, but who James points to as examples of the faith. So James is not saying here that it is wrong to be rich. He is not saying that. We have to teach the book in its context, right? Um, And so the godly rich are people who've made a living, living, a good living, not by taking advantage of other people, not by exploiting their hardship, but honestly uh, with integrity. And then the godly rich share what they have. They share with the poor. They further the kingdom of God. They're willing to share the godly rich, right? Well, then there's the ungodly poor. That is not who James has in view in these verses, the ungodly poor. These are people, they may be lazy, they may be bad stewards, they may be careless, they may have made poor decision after poor decision. They may have never set up a budget and never even tried to live within a budget. They continually live beyond their means because they're just trying to feed their appetites, right? That's the ungodly poor. And then finally, you have the ungodly rich. That is who James is addressing here in James chapter 2. They gain their riches on the the backs of the unfortunate or the misfortune of other people. They gain their riches at the expense of other people. And furthermore, they're building a kingdom for themselves. They're not investing any of that back into the kingdom of God. They're being greedy and selfish. They're not giving away any of that or giving back any of that. The ungodly rich. So so the what is don't judge people based on external circumstances. 
And now he's going to continue to dive into the why. Look at verse 8. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law, now the royal law is the commandment of Jesus to love God and love others. That's the royal law. So James quotes him here. He's quoting Jesus. According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. So what he's saying is, look, don't just say that you love people. Just like he said, be doers of the word, right? Well, the word says, love one another as I have loved you. Don't just say that you love your Christian brothers and sisters. Prove it. Live like you do. And favoritism and partiality only love from the perspective of what's in it for me. What do I get out of this relationship? How do I feel when I'm in this relationship with someone else? And then he goes on and he says, but if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become a lawbreaker, right? So it doesn't matter what we've all done. The fact in the room, James is outing every single one of us in this room as lawbreakers, and favoritism and partiality or discrimination is one of the ways in which we've become guilty of breaking the law. And James says, well, so what if you haven't murdered anybody? So what if you haven't, uh, you haven't stolen anything? You've still committed, committed favoritism. Guess what? That makes you guilty. That makes you as guilty as anybody else. Because if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole law. And we get that, right? Because, you know, laws are there. And if we break one, we are a law breaker. And that's just kind of, you know, in our hearts, right? Now, then he says in verse 12, look at this. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, this, the law of liberty, again, is the command of Jesus to love God and to love one another another. Elsewhere, it's called the law of Christ. It's called the law of freedom. It's called the royal law. But that's what James is referring to here, right? The law of love. And he's just reminding us again, favoritism violates the law of love. Now, I want to I want to talk about, I want to help us understand this word sin that James uses in relation to favoritism. Uh, So there's a word in the New Testament for sin that means to miss the mark, and it's an archery term. And so what a lot of us do when we hear a phrase like that is we picture ourselves on a farm, we're shooting at a bale of hay, and we, we wind back and we let go And we miss the bullseye by this much. Well, that gap between the bullseye and where the arrow landed would be my sin. That's how far I came from perfection. So many of us get that picture, right? And I think it's a horrible picture. I think it fails Scripture terribly. And here's why. Because the Scripture always talks about sin in terms of transgressors and victims. So let's change that around a little bit. Let's pretend that instead of being on a farm, you're on a crowded street, 
and you're aiming at a target and around that target and behind that target is just a huge group of people. And if you don't hit that target, you're going to hit one of those people. And so people are laying around, right, while you're trying to become a better archer. They're wounded, they're bleeding out, they're, they're, they're on the sideline, or they're dead. Friends, that is how the Bible talks about sin. When you and I miss the mark, we almost always wound other people. We are not on some solitary, tranquil farm and, well, if I hit the target, big deal, and if I don't, big deal. No, there are lives on the line and people at stake every single time. And then look at verse 13. He says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy. He's just quoting Jesus. I mean, didn't Jesus say on the Sermon on the Mount, as you judge others, so you will be judged? He's just quoting what Jesus had already said. However you judge others, that judgment's going to come back on you. So here's what I would say to you this morning. I'd ask you to really look into your heart. So if you find in your heart an irritation with a group of people, If you find in your heart a disdain for the elderly or a disdain for African Americans or Hispanics or Asians, if you find in your heart a disdain against white people, if you find in yourself a disdain for those who are in a lower socioeconomic bracket, if you find within yourself a disdain in yourself for for people who've made bad choices and you go, well, you know what? They just need to live with those. We shouldn't come alongside them and help them. They just need to live with their choices. If that's you, you are breaking the law of Christ and you are violating the law of love. And I am too when I engage in that kind of behavior. And then look how he ends it. At least he ends positive. I'll tell you how. He says, listen, mercy triumphs over judgment. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, the law of love, the law of grace and mercy. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And then that phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, look, I want you to remember personally the triumph of God's mercy in your life over God's judgment. God was merciful to you. When you were dressed in shabby and dirty clothes, God took you in and he dressed you in the righteousness of his son. God's mercy, and that's the only thing it was, his grace and mercy, rescued you from judgment. So how dare we judge others by some external, shallow, and misleading factor. So he says, look, I want you to put away the wickedness of favoritism and discrimination, and in light of God's incredible mercy to you, I want you to be merciful to others. See, don't judge other people based on outward appearances, what they make, what they have, what they don't have. 
Don't do that. He says it's wicked and it's sinful and it destroys relationships in churches because it violates in the most selfish way the law of love. And don't do that because God never does that, right? God judges based not on what I look like, not on something shallow or superficial. God judges based on what's in here. He judges based on my heart, your heart. So here's my word to you this week. You know, we spend so much time, don't we, in front of mirrors, you know, thinking, ruminating about on our externals. What if we began to spend just as much time on changing the inside? What if we were interacting with God's word every day and letting that be a mirror? Remember in James chapter 1, that's what he said. He said, look, the word of God is like a mirror. It shows you where, where you need to make corrections. You know, I mean, and so the, the illustration James uses, he says this. He says, look, to, not, to read the word of God and not do what it says would be as ridiculous and silly as somebody to get up in the morning, look at a mirror, see all the adjustments that need to made, be made and just go, rock on, I'm out. And do nothing with it. James says that's ridiculous. So what if we spend as much time looking into the mirror of our souls as we did the mirror that depicts our faces? May that be your journey and mine in the days and weeks to come. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the beauty of it, the integrity of it. God, we thank you too for how much you love us. You're not afraid to call us out. You're not afraid to ask too much of us because you've given everything for us. And so God, help us live in a way that matches your heart, the heart of the gospel and the law of love. I ask for supernatural grace and mercy for every one of us in this room. In the name of our Jesus and all God's people said, amen. amen.